Hello, I'm Dr. S. Mocker, and today we are going to wrap up our discussion of the 1990s. We're going to talk a little bit about 1990s culture wars, including the violent aftermath of culture wars. We're going to talk about scandal in the White House and the impeachment of Bill Clinton. And then we're going to talk about the election of 2000. So we're going to fully get out of the 1990s today. And then for our last session, next time we will be covering post-2000. So we'll be talking about the September 11th terrorist attacks in 2001 and then the war on terrorism and domestic responses to that. But that's more next time. Today, we got to finish up the 1990s. So let's get to it. Last session, we talked about a growing diversity within the United States because of shifting patterns of immigration, bringing in more Americans of Latinx descent, of Asian descent, of African descent from overseas. And we talked about how these changing demographics really started to shift United States culture. We're also going to see uh, in the 1990s advances in rights movements for groups like Americans with disabilities, LGBTQ folks, and Native Americans. So one of the biggest moves of the 1990s as far as rights movement was the passage of the first Americans with Disabilities Act in 1990. This act prevented discrimination in hiring and promotion on the basis of ability, as well as improved accessibility of public accommodations. So today you can see ADA compliance in many different areas, whether it's something as simple as having a ramp in addition to stairs to get into a building, or also the accommodations you get in higher education, for example, as a student, right? That colleges have to provide accommodations to address any different abilities that you might have things. So for example, as a professor, if you have a visual disability, then I might have to do things like provide handouts and larger font for you. So these are things that are covered under the ADA, which has been since updated and expanded. And yes, it took until 1990 for these changes to be fully passed in Congress. So imagine a world before the ADA if you are a person with disabilities that fall under this. The gay rights movement had spent most of the 1980s dealing with the AIDS crisis. AIDS started to spread fairly rapidly through uh, the LGBTQ community in the late 70s and early 1980s, becoming a full-blown pandemic worldwide. And part of this shift over to focusing not necessarily on discriminatory laws, but on public health became because of the AIDS crisis was so many people were dying. The shift over to AIDS meant that LGBTQ activists were focused on things like trying to address and reduce the rate of infection, lobbying the federal government to devote more resources to to eradicating the disease. And the Reagan administration in the 1980s had been fairly slow to do this. By the year 2000, almost half a million Americans had died of AIDS, although as we get closer to the year 2000, more effective treatments for AIDS have popped up to the point where recently in the news, some individuals have been released for the short term. We're still waiting long-term results, but the short term declared free of AIDS. We'll see whether those uh, treatments remain effective in the future. But diagnosis of AIDS is no longer the death sentence that it was in the early 1980s and 1990s, in part because of this push for increased awareness, increased public health initiatives, and increased research to find cures for AIDS and HIV. Once the AIDS pandemic started to become 
become far less deadly. The gay rights movement also moved towards trying to change perception of LGBTQ individuals, in particular with the notion of same-sex marriage. This first pops up in the United States in Hawaii when the Hawaii State Supreme Court becomes the first state to allow gay marriage. And this sparks a bit of a backlash nationwide because of this fear of the Supreme Court case Bear v. Mikey out of Hawaii in 1993, paving the way for same-sex marriage nationwide. So we'll talk more about that in a second. Native Americans are also on the rebound. In terms of numbers, more and more Americans are identifying Native American heritage on official government documentation, including the census. In the 2010 census, about 5 million people identified themselves as Native American. And in the 1990s, we see the increased campaign for rights and for compensation for past wrongs that had begun in the 60s and 70s starting to bear fruit. For example, in 2001, the Cayuga Nation got $248 million in compensation for past land seizures. And many Native American groups by the 1990s began to see that they were granted their request for quasi-sovereignty. So what this means is that Native Americans were given an increasing freedom to establish their own system of laws on reservation lands that did not necessarily have to be in complete agreement with the laws of the state in which the reservation was located. As part of this, many Native American groups sought to exploit this freedom for profit by establishing casinos. So again, Native American reservations, because they had their own rules governing the land, could establish casinos in states that otherwise did not allow gambling. And casinos become a profitable source of income for many tribes, grossing on average about $15 billion a year. One of the biggest Native American casinos in the United States is Foxwood. Foxwood was operated by the Pequot tribe, and if you took the first half of American history already, the name might seem a little familiar to you. Just as a reminder, the Pequot tribe were a tribe that had fought a war against the Puritans in New England back in the 1600s, uh, had been slaughtered by the Puritans at places like Mystic, the Mystic Massacre, and then the end of the Pequot War had been almost completely destroyed. Now the Pequot run the most profitable Native American casino in the United States, so quite a comeback story. While casinos help provide revenue for some Native American tribes, they're not a one-size-fits-all solution. Chronic poverty is still a big problem on reservations. Some Native American reservations have poverty rates as high as 50%. There's also a higher rate of issues with substance abuse, domestic abuse, and other kind of negative factors that Native Americans face. So even though many Native American groups saw casinos as profitable, they don't work for everybody and they come with their own set of problems. All of these changes that were happening in the 1990s as the United States is getting more diverse and minorities are growing in their percentage of the population resulted in a phenomenon that we refer to as the culture wars. So the culture wars were a pushback against this multicultural trend in the United States. Many people who are more socially and politically conservative believed that celebrating diversity was not helpful, that it undermined a sense of unified nationalism in the United States. This pushback against multiculturalism became evident in debates over things like bilingual education and affirmative action, as well as serious debates over whether illegal immigrants could have access 
to healthcare and welfare benefits. Because of this pushback to multiculturalism, by the year 2000, 23 states had passed laws making English the official language. Now, do they need to do that? Is English functionally threatened in dominance in places? No, but this was more of a symbolic middle finger, if you will, to multiculturalism. Groups like the Christian Coalition, led by Pat Robertson, who was an evangelical minister and current talk show host, focused on restoring traditional values by campaigning against abortion, against gay rights, secularism, and weirdly government funding of the arts. I don't know what people have against art. There's also concern among social conservatives over issues like evolution, the changing racial climate, right, the changing demographics of the United States, and the breakdown of the nuclear family. So all of this kind of comes together in the 1990s with concerns over gay marriage and concerns over women. So the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996 was passed to address this alarm over a prospective expansion of gay marriage after the Bear v. Mikey case in 1993 in Hawaii, with many people arguing that marriage was between one man and one woman. When they're talking about declining family values, when we look at the demographics, there are some big trends that support their concerns over the breakdown of the traditional family structure. By the time we get to the 1990s, more than 50% of marriages ended in divorce, and 40% of births were to women who were not married. Two-thirds of women worked outside of the home while still earning less pay, and when you looked at census data, the nuclear family, identified as mom, dad, and kids, did appear to be in decline. Less than half of households registered in the census had married couples, and only about a fifth or 20% of households that had married couples also had kids. So people were getting married at seemingly lower rates and having kids at seemingly lower rates once they got married. Part of these changes are some cultural changes, people accepting a little bit more cohabitation without marriage or kids born out of wedlock. Some of it also is the changing economic and educational realities for women. By the time we get to the end of the 1990s, women are earning 60% of college degrees degrees. This is up from only from 35% of all college degrees in 1960. And women were earning 40% of all advanced degrees, which was a huge jump forward after only earning 5% in 1960. Today, women earn more than half of all degrees at all levels, whether we're talking about associates or bachelor's degrees or some more specialized degrees like a master, a PhD, a JD, or an MD. So women now have eclipsed the 50% mark in recent years for the advanced degrees. All of these things were not seen as a bonus by members of the culture wars. Their particular idea of the traditional family was that women should stay at home, be married, and raise kids. And with women gaining increasing levels of education, this was seen as less likely that women would give up the value of their degree or perception of giving up a value of degree by staying at home. So this anxiety over the direction of American culture and of it seeming to move away from this traditional cult of domesticity in which women stay at home and have kids and are in a straight marriage with this close nuclear family provoked some extreme responses. Anxiety over this shift in American culture promoted dangerous shifts towards fascism. Now, fascism is a political ideology that is very, very conservative. And there is 
these fringe elements within the political and conservative movement in the United States that becomes even more extreme and polarized and radicalized because of this anxiety over culture wars. So when I'm talking about radicalization, I'm not talking about all political conservatives or social conservatives here. I'm talking about a small group within this movement. There is increasing sense of radicalism against abortion, especially after the Supreme Court takes up the issue of abortion for the first time since Roe v. Wade in 1992 with the case of Casey versus Planned Parenthood of Pennsylvania. In this case, the Supreme Court did not strike down abortion, much to the dismay of social conservatives, but rather reaffirmed a woman's right to access abortion by clarifying that women were not required to notify husbands or partners before procedures, which was at the heart of the law that was being contested in Pennsylvania, that women had to give notification to their partners before seeking an abortion. The Supreme Court struck that down. But in the Casey versus Planned Parenthood ruling, they did state that states were allowed to regulate other aspects of abortion. So in other words, they couldn't mandate that women notify their partners, but they could do things like pass laws designed to regulate the health and safety of abortion clinics, which many states have done today and in including in pushing some boundaries on what is acceptable under health and safety. We're still trying to find that line where this concern over health and safety ends up being more concern over trying to eradicate abortion. So there are still cases before the Supreme Court, including in this current legislative case as of recording in 2020, that we're waiting to hear back on. After the Supreme Court upholds abortion, there's a rise in violent attacks on abortion providers and clinics, including murders of doctors and bombings of clinic throughout the 1990s. But the abortion rate declines. Why does the abortion rate decline? Some of it could be from people who are afraid that if they go to a clinic, they may be targeted for violence. But a lot of it has to do with an increased use of contraception. So people are not having as many unplanned pregnancies and therefore not seeking out abortion as a remedy to becoming unexpectedly pregnant. So as contraception use increases, the rate of abortion drops. There's also the phenomenon of private militias like the Aryan Nation that are created under the fear that a federal government that was strong represented the repression of their freedom, especially when it came to government enforcement of gun laws. These militias oftentimes cited American Revolutionary Era writers And they argued that the federal government plotted to surrender our sovereignty to the United Nations. A lot of these militia groups originated in the wake of American involvement in Vietnam. The first generation of these militia activists had actually had a fairly high number of Vietnam veterans involved in the movement. And it began out of this concern over government disrespect for these veterans' sacrifice and what began originally as a, a movement to try to better or improve the government response to their concerns eventually became an anti-government movement. So these people identified the government as beyond redemption is irredeemable and therefore it should be the target of destruction. So these private militia groups like the Aryan Nation shift away from political conservatism and towards outright domestic terrorism. And we see this with the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995 when Timothy McVeigh, who had been part of one of these right-wing militia groups, targeted the federal building in Oklahoma City 
with a truck bomb, which killed 168 people, including many children in an on-site daycare that was close to the epicenter of where the bomb went off. McVeigh denied his involvement in militia groups, uh, denied this sense of radicalization. However, there is overwhelming evidence that McVeigh had taken part in a militia group. If you're interested in reading about the evolution of militia groups, I highly recommend the book Bring the War Home, which is a book about the rise of the militia movement from the 70s through the 90s that does talk a lot about Timothy McVeigh. Now we get to scandal. Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton, and impeachment. In the 1990s, we see the continuation of this personalizing politics of making politicians' personal lives more directly open targets for political campaigns. We saw that a little bit in the very ugly and personal campaigning in 1988, and it continues throughout the 1990s. Media becomes increasingly focused on politicians' private lives. This comes up in 1991 when Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas was undergoing hearings to be placed on the Supreme Court and was plagued by accusations of sexual harassment by law professor Anita Hill. And so the hearings on whether Thomas should be confirmed were also talking about these allegations of misconduct against Thomas, although Thomas was confirmed anyways. Then there's this notion of an investigation into the Clintons. In 1993, there is an investigation of a real estate deal in Arkansas called Whitewater. And there's this question over whether the Clintons profited illegally in this deal. Kenneth Starr had been appointed to investigate Whitewater, but what was initially a targeted investigation over one real estate deal became a general investigation into misconduct, including a sexual harassment claim filed in 1994 by Paula Jones, and then eventually Starr will discover an affair with a young White House intern named Monica Lewinsky. Starr, once he learns of the affair between Bill Clinton and the White House intern Monica Lewinsky, will focus almost obsessively on it, and Starr's investigation report triggered the House to vote to impeach Clinton on charges of perjury and obstruction of justice. Clinton is probably the only person to ever define oral sex as not sex, as he declared on the stand he did not have sex with that woman, though she did give him blowjobs. Clinton then went to trial in the Senate, because remember, how impeachment works is the House launches an investigation to see whether there's enough evidence of wrongdoing they will file allegations of charges, in this case, two counts of impeachment, perjury, and obstruction of justice. And then once the House does that, there has to be a trial in the Senate to weigh on whether the person is in fact guilty. Remember, it doesn't have to be a president. It can be a vice president. It can be a Supreme Court justice. It can be any other kind of federal level employee that goes up for impeachment. So the Senate is responsible for holding a trial and voting on whether to convict the person, in which case they're moved from office or whether to acquit them, in which case they are still impeached but remain in office. Clinton, when the Senate trial happened, ended up not being found guilty. He was acquitted, in part because the Senate and most Americans in public opinion polls at the time were very appalled at this notion that Clinton could be impeached for personal misconduct. They said, don't get us wrong. He's a dog. He's cheating on his wife. He's having an affair in the White House. But is that reason enough to remove him from office for personal 
misconduct. So Clinton is not, in fact, removed from office, but he remains impeached. So going into the 2000 election, the Clinton saga is fresh in people's minds. Clinton is term limited, so he can't run again even if he wanted to. His vice president, Al Gore, will run as the Democratic nominee, with Joseph Lieberman as his running mate. For the Republican Party, they choose George W. Bush, the son of George H.W. Bush and a Texas governor. Bush chooses Dick Cheney as his running mate, his dad's old Secretary of Defense. And then, as a third-party candidate, we have Ralph Nader running for the Green Party. Nader had a long history of being a consumer advocate. So we have three candidates in this presidential election, with Nader appealing to people who were on a little bit more of the left or liberal side of the Democratic Party, and therefore siphoning some votes away from Al Gore. In the 2000 election, the popular vote is extremely close. Al Gore wins the popular vote by 0.005%. That's it. Not even a full percent, 0.005%. But we all know it's not the popular vote that wins you the presidency. It's the Electoral College. The Electoral College vote was close too, and the race came down to Florida. Confusion reigned in Florida, however. Wildly different polling and voting technology in Florida threw results into doubt. And the Florida Supreme court because of this because of the closeness of the race, ordered a hand recount of votes that could not be easily read by machines. So if you've ever heard the phrase hanging chad, this is a vote with mechanical punch where the punch didn't clearly go all the way through. The case gets kicked to the federal Supreme Court because at this point in time, the vote was before the recount leaning towards Bush. So the Republican Party escalates this and the Supreme Court hears the case of Bush v. Gore in 2000. The Supreme Court ordered a stop to the recount and allowed the governor of Florida to call the election for George W. Bush. The governor of Florida happened to be George W. Bush's brother, Jeb Bush, but I'm not alleging misconduct there. What is weird, though, is the logic that the Supreme Court used for the ruling. According to the justices, the Equal Protections Clause argued that all votes should be counted by the same standard, which was very difficult to do, in fact, impossible to do, because Florida had so many different voting technologies across the state of Florida. So not all Floridians were voting with the same technology by the same means anyways. But the Supreme Court, in a narrow ruling 5-4, declared that to go on with this hand recount would be a violation of this notion of voting with the same standard. And so therefore, the current leader, George W. Bush, was declared the winner of the Florida Electoral College votes, and thus the winner of the election. So when we look at the election of 2000, we see how divided Americans really are for the first time uh, in recent history. The popular vote almost exactly split down the middle. The electoral college vote almost exactly split down the middle as well. It was 271 to 266. Bush succeeded in the South and the West and in rural areas, whereas Gore was more popular in the Northeast, the Midwest, the West Coast, in urban areas, and Gore was also more popular among women. Women supported the Democrats by an 11% lead, which was a change from elections before 1960 when women tended to vote more Republican. Today, we still observe the gender gap for the most part in presidential elections in favor of the Democrats. And the campaign cost $1.5 billion. Both candidates used public relations techniques to emphasize a moderate position, avoiding talking about major 
major and potentially divisive issues. But at the same point in time, as contentious as this election was, it did also reveal a lot of Americans who were very disengaged politically. Less than half of registered voters actually participated in the election of 2000. And that's in the the national election cycle. When we look at those who voted not just for president, but also for their state and local races on the same ballot, only 20 to 30% of registered voters voted in state and local elections. And this is a trend that still continues today. We get very excited if we see even 20 to 30% in local elections in El Paso, Texas, where I am currently. We get really excited if the turnout for a local or state election exceeds 10% because it's usually about eight. So this sense of people being frustrated with politics and and not exercising their right to vote, we see this trend happening in the 2000 election too. So as we get into a brand new century, the year 2000, it's important to consider how far we've come from the beginning of this class material. Compared to 100 years before in 1900, life expectancy rose drastically. In 1900, Americans were lucky to see their 50s with most Americans living to only about 46 or 48 years old. But by the year 2000, life expectancy had improved, so the average American was living until they were 74 or 79. Things like plumbing and electricity were now the norm for most Americans, whereas in 1900, they had been luxuries. And the rate of college education amongst Americans had tripled since 1960, largely as a legacy of the GI Bill post-World War II and also increasing affordability and accessibility of college. But while America had made a lot of gains in the past 100 years, there were still some areas in which the United States fell behind. The United States still had a large rate of poverty and income inequality amongst developed nations. It still had a fairly high infant mortality rate amongst developed nations. And today, the United States is one of only two nations in the world to not have any kind of parental leave for new parents, no formal government policy for that, and And Americans still are relatively lacking when it comes to paid sick days or vacation guarantees under federal laws as well. Freedom had become increasingly defined as individual pursuit of happiness. So not necessarily this economic freedom, right, or control over your workplace or your pace of work, not participation in the vote and democracy, not social justice, but instead pursuing your own happiness. So as we enter the year 2000, Americans are fairly optimistic in what this new century will bring. Maybe we'll get flying cars by the end of the the 2000s, but most Americans are looking forward to the future with optimism. That's all going to come to a screeching halt in 2001 with the attacks on the United States on September 11th. We're going to talk next time about that, about how that drastically reshapes the direction of U.S. foreign policy and helps to shape the reality we live in today. We're also going to talk about how the September 11th terrorist attacks are not isolated, that there were early warning signs before that that terrorism was going to become an important concern for the United States in the new millennium. Until next time, I'm Dr. S. Mocker.